Now it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Our Father, we thank You for Your Son who said He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And He commissioned us. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I send You. Thank You that they would accuse Him of being a friend of sinners. May they accuse us of the same. May we never forget where we have come from, or in some cases, what You protected us from. But we thank You that You have given us a new righteousness in Jesus Christ and a new standing of holiness purely by Your grace. May the grace of God grow in our hearts that we might be more passionate to live holy and zealously in this present age. We pray, our Father, for our friend day coming in two weeks that it would not just be another friend day. That You would help us to be faithful. You've already told us to go into all the world and to preach the Gospel. So help us to be sensitive to those people that You would want us to invite in the next two weeks. Now we invite You to speak to us today. Thank You that You did not abandon us when You save us, but just as You promised, the love of the Spirit has been poured out in our hearts. Thank You that He is our helper, our teacher. And may He speak to each and every heart, to every person listening, to those who need Christ, may today be a turning point. To those who are compromised and lukewarm, may this be a new start. And may those who are living, may we excel even more. So come and help me and fill me in my weakness and empower me and use me, I pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to the prophet Daniel chapter 3. If you are joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this prophet. And in many ways, the book of Daniel is a survival manual for God's people living in a climate of hostility and hatred towards those who love the Messiah. In the early church, tens of thousands of Christians lost their life because they refused to deny their allegiance to Jesus Christ. When ordered to renounce their faith, the emperor of Rome called Polycarp. Polycarp was a man of God who had been personally discipled by the apostle John before he died. And Polycarp, when asked to renounce, said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he, Christ, never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? With that statement, the emperor further threatened him that he would release the lions from the cages, to which he said, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. Seeing his determination, one final time, he threatened to burn him at the stake. To which Polycarp responded, You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while it is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why do you tarry? Bring forth what you will. 
And so because he refused to renounce Christ, he was burned alive. And throughout the centuries, many of God's people have suffered deep persecution. Some have given their lives, and some have been miraculously delivered as we will study such a case this morning. And while many here, many listening, may not be able to identify the book or the chapter that this historical event comes from, it's familiar even to those who are not well read in the Scripture. It's one of the most famous and most loved historical records in all of biblical history. And it's a record of three men who refused to bow down to the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had made. Daniel 3 is really a profile in courage. And we need some courageous men and women and boys and girls who will stand for Jesus Christ in this day no matter what. And of course, they make it into the hall of fame of faith because the writer of the Hebrews says that by faith they quenched the power of fire. And so these were men who were willing to break from the herd. They didn't care what everybody else was doing. They were going to do what is right. And I want us to be courageous people. And biblical courage comes from an internal conviction of what God says. And the only way to find out what God says is to study His Holy Word. And so I want to begin by reading just the first six verses of this portion of Scripture to familiarize you with where we are going. Daniel 3, beginning now in verse 1. Follow along. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now, three observations I want to make from this passage concerning these three men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. First, they would not bow. They would not bow. Now, let me bring you into the context. If you remember, 600 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar came down to siege the city of Jerusalem. It was under siege for some time. He was General Nebuchadnezzar at the time. And while he's attempting to siege the city, he learns that his father, King Nabopolassar, has died. So he puts a puppet king in the place of Jeconiah, and in the process, he takes some of Israel's choice people as hostages, and amongst those hostages are four people that most of you know, Daniel and his three friends. And they come, of course, from the royal family. This is Israel's best. He's looking for the brightest and the best amongst the Hebrew people. And by the way, the Hebrew people have contributed much to this world. It was a Hebrew person who first discovered the polio vaccine. It was a Hebrew person who discovered insulin, who discovered penicillin, 
who discovered aspirin as a pain reliever in a multiplicity of contributions in every field you can think of. In fact, 25% of all the Nobel Prizes that have been awarded since the start have gone to Hebrews. God has set his hand on these people. And Nebuchadnezzar could recognize that these were some of the brightest and the best. And so he brought them back, if you remember, to Babylon. And they went through a three-year indoctrinational program where he taught them the Babylonian language and culture, gave them new names, tried to give them a new diet. And of course, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, most of us know them by their pagan names, but we need to know them by their God-given names. These are men whom we find in this chapter that stand up. Now, when you come to the chapter, you immediately notice that Daniel can't be found anywhere. And many suggestions have been made. Some say, well, he was off serving King Nebuchadnezzar in a foreign court. Some say, well, he was just out of the capital that day when the king gave this decree. Some say he was sick. The fact is, we don't know. And there's so much ink that is spilt on what we don't know, we should focus really on what we do know. And we do know that Daniel, who wrote this book, did not feel it was important to indicate why he was not present, but it was more important to emphasize the three friends who were here. And as we think about these three men, I want us to think about the context as this unfolds. First is the image is built. The image is built. Notice the opening verse. It's really first commandment material. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with six cubits, he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you were here last week, you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he wanted all the wise men, all the Chaldeans in the kingdom to interpret it. But to see if they were really men of legitimacy, he first asked these people to tell him what his dream was. And of course, none of them could. But Daniel is given a vision during the night where he not only is told what the dream is, but God gives him the meaning of the dream. And in the dream, he sees this metallic man that represents four great empires. And of course, he says in verse 38 of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. But like many world leaders who are interested in their legacy... Nebuchadnezzar didn't want to just be the head of gold. He wanted to be the entire image. And so he didn't like the words in verse 39 that I have circled in my Bible, after you. And so like others, he wanted to be a big shot. He wanted to be the entire image. And so there on the plain of Dura, which is 11 miles south of the city of Babylon, away from all of the gods and temples that are dedicated to other gods, this king makes an image dedicated to himself, and he builds not just a head, but an entire note image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and width six cubits. It's a sizable statue, presumably made out of wood overlaid in gold. And if he was using the Egyptian cubit, which more than likely he was, which is 20 inches, then it's approximately 100 feet high and 10 feet thick. It's a gigantic image. And I suspect it was either an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself or the god Nabu of whom he was named after. Nebu in Hebrew, Nabu in his language. So Nabu Kanezer. And so here is a man 
who takes a radically different kind of posture than the way we left him in chapter 2. We didn't quite finish it last week, but notice, if you will, verse 26. After Daniel is given the dream and then interprets the dream, he's so impressed. We read, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Now understand, when it says he did homage to Daniel, he is not worshiping him. And we know that for several reasons. Number one, Daniel, who's a man of God, does not tear his robes and shout blasphemy. In addition, verse 47 clearly indicates that it is the God of Daniel who deserves all the credit in this man's mind. He's showing respect to Daniel's God. And so we read in verse 47, the king answered Daniel and said, surely... Your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Sounds kind of like a public profession of faith, but in reality it is not. It is not true genuine repentance. The real test of genuine repentance is time. And I am not so naive to think that everyone who comes down front who says, I am a Christian, is a genuine Christian. They're not always genuine. The test of genuineness, the test of real faith, is what Jesus calls perseverance. He who perseveres to the end, speaking of tribulation saints, will be saved. Time is the real test. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, the Bible teaches you will persevere. Which is why in the parable of the sower, Jesus said, "...in those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy." And these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. There's many people today who are just like this king. They witness the work of the Spirit of God as he had witnessed the work of the Spirit through Daniel. They get all excited. They know there's something to Christianity. They hear the word preached. They have an emotional experience of sort. They get very joyous over it. But they believe for a while. And in time of temptation, when the allurements of this world and all of its concerns and worries come along, they fall away. Were they saved? No, they were never saved. Every time you see the word believe in the Bible, it's not an expression of genuine faith. There are people who believe about the Lord Jesus, but who do not believe in the Lord Jesus. And so in time of temptation, they fall away. And so Nebuchadnezzar is just like that. Some time has gone by, and it is apparent that what he says at the end of chapter 2 is not real. Now, don't forget that Daniel chapters 1 through 6, as we studied in the introductory message, covers a time frame of 60 years. Um, We find them as young teenagers, somewhere between 15 to uh, 20 years of age, Uh, And at the end, in Daniel chapter 6, based on the chronology of the book, Daniel is somewhere in his 80s. So a good question to ask, because there is a connection between chapters 2 and 3, and many times it is missed when this passage is taught, how much time has transpired between the two chapters? Well, we don't know for certain. Jewish tradition that had been passed down through the centuries from the 6th century said 16 years. And so the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, have in the text 16 years. It's a notation, but that's what they thought, 16 years. In either case, it's enough time to show that this man's faith was not real. 
And if indeed it was 16 years, and we know at this point, Medo-Persia, who is the next empire in Daniel's dream, is beginning to gain strength. And I'm sure that that concerned this king. And so the fact that his salvation was not real and that his profession was empty is he is involved in idolatry. He's involved in promoting it. So there's the image that is built, but then there's the image that is dedicated. It's now time to dedicate his project. And so to do so, in typical Babylonian fashion, he gathers all the higher-ups in the kingdom. And there are three aspects to this dedication that are important to note. First, the order that is given, the order who speaks, and then the outcome. First, the order. It's found here in verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king sent word to assemble, and then the guest list is given. The satraps, they were like the state governors. The prefects, they were the military commanders. The governors, that refers to the leaders of the smaller provinces within the kingdom. They're like mayors. The counselors, those were the special advisors. The treasurers, literally the Hebrew says the treasure bearers, they're in charge of taking care of the bills. The judges, They're the law bearers. They're like our Supreme Court justices. The magistrates, those are the judges on a local level. And lastly, all the rulers of the provinces. These were the people who enforced the law, the law enforcement division. The bottom line is that all the movers and all the shakers in the kingdom were invited to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Everybody who is anybody got an invitation. Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, when you read that verse, it seems a little redundant, but it's not by accident. God does not say things because... He is giving us filler. It's not like he has nothing else to say. He's repeating himself so that you cannot miss it. That when the king gave an invitation, if you valued your life, you better go. And that's the point of the verse. And Daniel, of course, again, is noticeably absent. And so this is a prime opportunity for some of the leaders in the kingdom who are extremely jealous of these Hebrew people to come and attack his friends. So beyond the order, order there's the orator, the, the preacher of sorts. Look at verse 4. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. So this is the king's paid preacher, so to speak. He basically announces whatever the king wants him to say. Nothing wrong with that, as long as you're announcing for the right king. But this herald is not announcing good news. He's announcing bad news. He's not encouraging people to worship the one true God. He's asking people to worship an image, to engage in idolatry. And I suspect in my lifetime, we will find out who the real preachers are. In fact, we already are. In one of our Baptist churches in town, they refuse now to take a stance on homosexuality. It's too divisive. They've taken a stance. And in two Presbyterian churches, they now officially endorse homosexual marriage. 
We'll find out who is heralding in the days ahead for the king of kings and who is heralding for the secular kings. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but in the last few decades, when we talk about abortion rights and lesbian rights and homosexual rights and all kinds of rights, the things that people call rights in God's eyes are nothing more than wrongs. And so notice the outcome, what happens. But whoever, verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The king's preacher is saying, as soon as the orchestra plays, as soon as you hear the the national anthem, so to speak, everyone is to fall down prostrate on their foreheads and worship Nabu and his prince Nebuchadnezzar. And to help you to make up your minds, the king has a burning furnace. What crucifixion was to Rome as a means of capital punishment Babylonian cuneiform instructs us the furnace was to these people. Just so that you can make up your mind, when the music begins to play, you better bow down or you will go into the fiery furnace. And by the way, the devil has always had his musicians. Music is a powerful medium either for good or for evil. When Saul is tormented by a demon, King David comes and plays godly music and the demons flee. You can tell a whole lot about a person's spirituality and where their heart is by the kind of music that they listen to. Some say, well, you know, I'm not really listening to the words. I just like the beat. Well, the devil has his beat too. And some of you are listening to music that's filled with godlessness and sensuality, and you think it has no effect on you, but it does. And I'm not speaking just to the teenagers, I'm talking to the adults. That all, some of the country music is absolutely filthy. So the devil has his people, and so the music is played, and we're plainly told that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image. Now, they're here, as you can see here, by the thousands. But there are three who refuse to bend. Now, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have uh, been in the text with Daniel being featured. And these three men, his three friends, have been kind of in the background. But now they are on center stage, and we will see that these men, like Daniel, have convictions of their own that are based on the Word of God. So first the image is built, then the image is dedicated, but then the image is spurned. Three men clearly do not cooperate, and they stood out like sore thumbs. Notice, if you will, beginning now in verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, we were introduced to the Chaldeans in chapter 1, and if you remember, I noted there that the term is used in the Old Testament both in an ethnic sense as well as in a technical sense. In an ethnic sense, it just refers to Babylonian people. And so Jeremiah 52 speaks of the army of the Chaldeans. You could say the army of the Babylonians. But it's also used in a technical sense to refer to a certain class of wise men, supposedly the wisest of the wisest. 
And these men are jealous of Daniel and his friends. If you remember from chapter 2 and verse 49, that the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. And you know, it bothered these people to no end. Here are these newcomers, these Jewish men who've been promoted once and now a second time, and they're at the top of the pack. And so they have an opportunity, especially with Daniel gone, to attack them. We see them venting their jealousy here in verse 9. Notice, they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. They recount it very carefully. Why? Because they want to hold the king accountable. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now notice verse 12 as they accuse these three of treason and heresy. There are certain Jews, you can almost hear their anti-Semitism. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, you know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have said, look, when in Babylonians, do as the Babylonians. There's 300,000 of them. There's only three of us. They could have become diplomats, but instead they become soldiers in the army of the living God. They might have said, well, look, if we go into the fire, we'll give up our opportunity to be a witness. Better to be officers in the king's service than ashes in the king's furnace. We'll compromise this one time. Or they could have rationalized, okay, we'll bow down to the image. But God will know in our hearts that we are standing up. God won't mind one little bow. No, it is never right to do wrong in order to have an opportunity to do right. Never, ever, ever. They knew they could be a witness, if necessary, through persecution. They knew like the early Christians, they could not and would not bow down. There were tens of thousands of Christians in the early years of the Roman Empire who were bloodied by the lions. Once a year, as the persecution grew, before Constantine made it the official religion of the empire, once a year Christians had to bow down there in Rome and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And the true believers refused to do that. They would say, Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. And so they were bloodied by the mouths of lions. Here were three Hebrew men who were willing to stand up for the living God because of what they believed. It's not always easy to walk away when people are doing what's wrong, but it's the right thing when at the office or there in your barracks they're telling a dirty joke. It's not always easy to say to your coach, no, I'm not coming to the gymnastics competition. I'm not going to play ball that morning. I don't care if it's the World Series. It's the Lord's Day, and on God's Day, I'm going to be with God's people. It's not always easy to go against the crowd, to drink the world's drink, to watch the world's movies. And do you know what I've personally discovered? When you take a stance for the living God, people will get upset just like these Chaldeans did. Why? Because it bothers them. When you stand what is for what is right, 
it is like a, a prod in their conscience. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. You don't do that in a self-righteous, pious way. But when you hold up the standard of righteousness as expressed in Scripture, the Spirit of God uses the law as a schoolmaster to lead people to Christ. And so people are not content to sin by themselves. And so Romans 1 says they know the ordinance of God, but nonetheless they give hearty approval to those who do such things. People don't want to go to hell alone. They want to take you there with them. And so here were three men who were not about to bow. They had some deep-seated convictions that came from the Word of God. But not only would they not bow, they would not bend. You see, there are some people who will initially say no to some things, but because their convictions don't run very deep, when pressure is put on them, they begin to bend. They can be talked out of it, and they'll conform to the behavior of others. Now, in this section, verses 13 through 18 deals with the king's reaction And then verses 19 to 23 deals with the Hebrews' response. So let's first think about the king's reaction. The story given by Daniel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is unfolded on three levels concerning his reaction. First, there's the king's anger. We read here in verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Then these three men were brought before the king. So he's livid. He's angry. Would anyone dare defy the order of the king? He cannot believe it. And of course, these men know what the king thinks. But they're interested in what the king of kings thinks. They're interested in what the living God says. And I want to tell you this morning... Moral compromise will destroy your life. And we live in a day of moral compromise. When we come to the Revelation, after we're done with Daniel, one of the characteristics of the seven messages Jesus gives to the church in those seven churches is that of compromise. And when people compromise morally, they open themselves up to false doctrines. That's true not only of an individual, that is also true of a church. When when the Protestant movement in this nation and all the mainline denominations have morally compromised on issues like abortion and homosexuality, they have opened themselves up to all kinds of gross error. And what the church is collectively is basically what we are individually. And God does not want people to compromise, and these men would not. So there's the king's anger. But then there's the king's astonishment. Notice verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is it true? How could you not obey my command is the sense? He's utterly astonished. But these guys are not phased by his reaction. And so that brings us to the king's angle. Very diplomatically, he puts pressure on them. Look at verse 14, 15. Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He's using some old-fashioned diplomacy. He's putting pressure on them. And he's hoping that they are going to bend. 
and you can hear the, the, the change in tone in the king's voice. He's basically saying, guys, look, I value you. If I didn't value you, you wouldn't be in the place you're at. You're at the top of the pack. He wouldn't have given other people a second chance, but he wants to give these guys a second chance. I want to be very gracious to you. One final time, the band is going to play, and if you will bow down, no problem. But if you refuse to bow down, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? Listen, God tells us that we're not to love the world. John wrote, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Friendship with the world, James says, is a form of spiritual adultery. He's not talking about being friends with the people of this world in terms of reaching them for Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But being a friend of the world's values is hostility towards God. And so Paul told us as we studied in Romans 12 that we're not to allow the world to shape us into its image and mold but we're to be metamorphosized to the renewing of our minds. And when you don't conform to the world, the world gets angry. In this country, if you refuse to bend, the world may put you in a furnace of laughter and scorn or a furnace of being ostracized from the group. When you don't do what they're doing, you're not going to be popular. But here are some men who not only don't bend to peer pressure, neither do they bend to fear pressure. And there's really two kinds of pressure that are unfolded here. The first 12 verses, it's peer pressure. But beginning in verse 13, it's fear pressure. He is trying to threaten them with their own lives. But it doesn't matter how much the king resents what they do. It doesn't matter how diplomatic he is. It doesn't matter how astonished he is. They are going to serve the one true God. This is first and second commandment stuff. Moses wrote in the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water below. You shall worship me and me only. You shall not serve and worship them, he said. God is not interested in idolatry. And idolatry is when you either worship a false god, and there are many expressions of idolatry. It might be some false god like Nabu or some other one like Bacchus. And there are many that are unfolded for us in the Scriptures. Or it might be greed. It might be sexual immorality. Paul calls that idolatry in the book, the letter to the Colossians. God does not want you to worship a false god, nor does He want you to use an object to worship the one true God. Because no object can begin to even express the one true God. And so here's this king. He asks, what God is there that can deliver you from my hands? But these men, they stand for what is right. And so now we come to the Hebrews' response. Point B there on your outline. I mean, it's a taunting question. He's challenging the integrity of God Almighty. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Who is that God? That's what he's saying. I don't believe such a God exists. That's the thought behind it. But just because the king does not know the one true God does not mean that the one true God does not exist. 
And just because the people of this world do not know the God of heaven does not mean that the God of heaven does not exist. And just because they don't understand something about the second birth does not mean the second birth is not real. And just because they do not believe there are moral absolutes does not change the fact that there are moral absolutes. And just because they do not believe that he spoke the universe into existence in six literal 24-hour days does not change the fact that he does. And just because they do not believe that there is an awful place that burns with fire and brimstone, an eternal place of judgment called hell, does not change the reality of hell. And just because our government calls two men or two women married does not mean they are married because God recognizes no such thing. And just because the world says you can change your gender, you cannot change your gender. He made the male or female. It doesn't matter what the world believes, God is clear. I want you to notice their courage. They have something to say. Almost in unison, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Do you see what they're saying? Respectfully, but with great courage, they're saying, O king, we don't even need to think about this. We don't need to decide what we're going to do. We don't have to have a meeting over this. We don't have to have any discussion over this. In modern language, we'd say, this is a no-brainer. We know what we're going to do. Their loyalty was to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments. And their hearts are rooted deeply in the truth of Scripture, which is what gives them courage. First, they were saying, basically, we won't give in. But now they're saying, look, we won't give up. It doesn't matter how much pressure you put on. We are going to be firm. We are going to be resolute to the truth. Oh, king, we will not bow down to your image. Do you know that a couple of big decisions will often help you to make a lot of the small decisions in life? I mean, if you were asked to deny Christ today with a gun to your head like some of those college students were just a few weeks ago, say you're a Christian, you're shot. So a number of those students were shot. If if you were under the persecution of ISIS, deny Christianity and confess Allah, the Muslim God, is king, and your head will be spared, what would you do? You wouldn't say, I hope, well, I need to go home and pray about this. There's nothing to pray about. There's nothing to think about. I don't have to think about whether I'm going to go home tonight and watch some dirty movie. Because I don't want to soil my heart. I don't want to plant the seeds in my life for adultery. I don't want the power and the hand and the fellowship of God taken off of my life. And it doesn't matter what these pastors like Perry Noble are doing using illustrations from godless movies that give sanction to them. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world is doing. What matters is what God calls you to do. I don't have to wonder whether I'm going to sleep in with my family when I'm on vacation or whether or not I'm going to go to church. I don't have to wonder whether or not, oh, I can save 300 bucks if I leave Sunday morning and miss church. I don't have to wonder those things because I've made some big decisions because my life belongs to the living God. It helps me make those little decisions. I don't have to wonder, even before I was a pastor, whether I was going to be a part of a local church where I use my gifts and abilities as God commands us to do. Because of some big decisions, I know what I'm going to do in the everyday stuff. So here's Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, 
in biblical archaeology tells us that there would have been approximately 300,000 people down on the plain of Dura. But they are three in 300,000. Listen, it doesn't matter what the majority is doing anymore. It doesn't matter though the fact that Christianity is changing in America and now all the new young pastors say, go out and have some booze. It's okay. And preachers like me are legalistic. It doesn't matter what the majority is doing. Look, there is coming a day when by the billions people will give allegiance to the Antichrist with his false morality and his false theology. But truth does not change. It doesn't matter what the majority is doing during the Roman Empire when Theodosius the Great was emperor. There was a theologian and bishop a pastor in the city of Alexandria by the name of Athanasius who defended the Bible and preached the Bible. He was a great man of God in his day. And the emperor did not like what he was preaching because it crisscrossed with his own morality. And so he called him and he said, Athanasius, don't you understand? The whole world is against you. To which he said, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Pressure did not move Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even when the whole world says the king is right, we will worship his image, they were not about to. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was called to appear before the Diet of Worms there by the Roman Catholic Church, and they asked him to recant his theology that a man was saved, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, that good works did not help save you. He taught they were just the fruit of salvation. And they wanted him to renounce that. And so they threatened to burn him at the stake, to which he wrote, my cause shall be commended to the Lord, for he lives and reigns just as he preserved the three Hebrew children in the furnace of the Babylonian king. If he is willing, unwilling to preserve me, my life is a small thing compared with Christ. Expect anything of me except flight or recantation. I will not flee, much less recant. So may the Lord Jesus strengthen me. We need some people with that kind of backbone today who know what the Word of God says and who will live by it. Here are some men who had courage. Here are some men who had great confidence. Look at verse 17 at their confidence. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Our God is sovereign. He is able to deliver if he so chooses. They knew that God could do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. But notice in, a different, in addition to their courage and their confidence, their commitment. While God is able, they add here in verse 18, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able, they are saying, but even if he chooses not to deliver us, we will obey him. That wasn't doubt. That was the deepest kind of faith. Forget all this Joel Olstein junk where he says you speak your destiny into existence. That's nonsense. You surrender your destiny to the hand of a sovereign God who does as he pleases. 
And if it is God's will, then these three men are ready to die because their faith is not built on God's performance. Is your faith built on God's performance? Do you obey him just if he does what you want him to do? Sometimes we pray, God, heal me, and he heals. And sometimes we pray, God, heal me, and he chooses not to. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I'm grateful to one of our church members years ago. He had cancer. God healed him. He was free five years. Came back, got cancer, free five years. Came back a third time. And he would come to church on Sunday morning with that swollen belly and in pain. And like Job, he said, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. What if God doesn't do what you want him to do? Has God's character changed? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Will you continue to serve Him? Sometimes in God's sovereignty, He chooses to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And sometimes God allows a head to be removed, as we will see in a wide-scale way during the time of the Great Tribulation. You see, great faith says God is able to deliver, but greater faith says if God does not deliver, yet I will praise Him and I will serve Him and be faithful. Here were these three men. They would not bow. They would not bend. Nor would they budge. They would not budge. They would not burn. Now, follow carefully. Here in verses 19 and 20, I want you to see the persecution that comes. The king now has to act. His mind is made up. He has no choice. He's given a command. His authority is at stake. Notice the persecution. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. I mean, he's ripped. He's hotter than the furnace. You can see his countenance. It says his facial expression was altered. Just read the Proverbs. You can tell a lot about a man's heart, but what's on his face? And so in his wrath, he orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than normal. Now carefully, let's read verses 21 to 23. They're so familiar, we miss some of the critical issues. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's so hot when they open the door, these guys are blasted, the soldiers, and they die. My son Grant always tells me when I'm barbecuing, he said, Dad, if you're looking, you're not cooking. But you know, occasionally you pull that lid off, or I'm famous for my brush piles in my backyard, and I build them big, and there's been more than one time when I've literally gotten my eyelashes singed. Well, here, this gust of air is so powerful, as soon as the soldiers throw them in, they're incinerated, they die from the heat. Verse 23, but these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Now, there's a lesson, and I think very often we make a big mistake in Christianity where we paint it purely as success and popularity. So often you hear these testimonies, oh, I love Jesus. He's made me a great athlete. 
I love Jesus. He's made me a successful businessman. I love Jesus. He's made me a great politician. Now, while God may make you a great businessman or athlete or politician, there are many hardcore pagans who are all of the above. And if you really want to associate something with Christianity, you might associate it with persecution. Because Paul said to Timothy, all, all, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And let me say to someone today who's considering becoming a Christian, it might get more difficult for you. When I was in India last year and I was witnessing to a lot of Hindu people, one of the responses was, well, if I leave Hinduism of which they have 300 million gods everywhere you turn, there's a god in that country. My parents will be so disappointed. I said, do you want to disappoint the living God or your parents? And I said, wouldn't it be wiser for you to please the living God and maybe in the process of your changed life, you could bring your parents to faith in Jesus Christ than for all of you to go to hell together? Listen, when you are a twice-born person in a world of once-born people, you will be going against the tide and the world won't like you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you because it loves its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, this is a new day in America. In the 60s and 70s and 80s as we repressed God and we said, no God, we're not interested. No praise, no thanks. God gave us over to sensuality. We continued to say, no God, I'm not interested. No praise, no thanks. No Bible reading, no prayer, nothing, no Ten Commandments. God gave us over to do that which is unnatural. And we've now adopted homosexuality and the third phase of God's wrath, not that will be revealed, but is being revealed, not just on our nation, but across the world, is God gives them over to a depraved, reprobate, upside-down mind where people call good evil and evil good. And if you want to see what it's right, read the last seven verses of Romans 7, because that's all we have to look forward to in America. You leave God out, God says, okay, I'll give you your wish. And I'm telling you, it's a new day for our children and for our grandchildren. They are going to face some battles like they've never seen. And we need to prepare them and get their head out of the tube and out of the computer game and in the Word of God, starting with our parents, where it is on our hearts so that we can teach them in the way. So there's their persecution, but notice too, their preservation. Then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This king saw these saints of God preserved by the presence of God. He says, was there not three men cast into the midst of the fire? And the crowd says, yes, king, yeah, that's true. Look, I see four. And they're in the fire without any harm. And the Hebrew text literally reads, and the appearance of the fourth 
is like the son of the gods. Now, some of you are using the old King James, and it doesn't say the son of the gods, it says the son of God, but that's an interpretive decision. That is not a translation in that sense. In fact, wherever I go in the world, there's not another language in the world I know that translates it that way. And there's only one English translation out of a multiplicity that translates it that way. It reads in the plural. It is actually plural. The son of the gods. That's the only way this pagan king could express it. He's a hardcore pagan. He knows nothing about God becoming a man. He knows nothing of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son whose name will be called Mighty God. He knows nothing of the coming Son of God. He's not some Israelite theologian. He has no spiritual vocabulary. He's using the language of paganism. And so who is this? And by the way, he not only calls him first a son of the gods. If you look down into verse 28, I have him circled. He calls him then God's angel. So what is this? A lot of debate has come over this verse. Is this what we call a Christophany? Where the Lord Jesus and one of his pre-incarnate, pre-Bethlehem appearances comes as the angel of the Lord. There are instances in the Old Testament where God the Son, ever before he took on human flesh, comes as the angel of the Lord, and that angel is called God. Or is this a theophany? Theos, God, we get our word theology from it. Phene means to, uh, to appear or to manifest. Is this a manifestation of God the Father? The way he manifested himself to Moses, or the way... Um, he appeared to other individuals in the Old Testament. Or is this just a normal angel? One of those angels, like in Daniel 6, who closes the mouths of the lion. An angel come to render service to those who will inherit salvation. The truth is, we don't know. And I can make for some colorful preaching today, but I won't because it will be unfaithful to the text. Now, if I were a betting man, I suspect when we get to heaven, we will find out this is the pre-incarnate Christ. But the fact is, it could be the Father or it could just be an angel. In either case, it does not change the fact that however God decides to do it, He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. That as the writer of the Hebrews said, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was a hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even upon them. Now, I've told you before that next to the book of Genesis, the most attacked book in the Bible is the book of Daniel. Why? Because number one, of its prophetic level, its preciseness, but also because of its miraculous content. Here are some men who would not bow, who would not bend, and in God's sovereign choice, he determined that because they would not bow, bend, or budge, they would not burn. And here they are in a fiery furnace that should have incinerated them. Yet the Bible says here their trousers were not burned. The smell of fire was not on them. No first-degree burns on their bodies, much less was a hair on their head even singed. 
We're in the realm of the miraculous. And that's why I told you, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God, then you can believe the rest of the Bible. But people attack the first verse in the Bible. And if the first verse is not true, if God did not create the world, if there was some spark out there and out of space that created some goo and out of the goo came you, then it's sheer nonsense. But if you can believe the first verse, if you can believe that God created the world, that God who created the world created fire, that God who created fire could in his sovereignty keep these men from being burned... When I was a little boy and I would go to catechism week after week, one year I sat under, I'm sure, some absolute apostate woman. And I remember just breaking my heart, her telling me that this didn't really happen. That Daniel was not true. And in my childlike faith, I thought, I think it happened. She said, no, it didn't happen. God, who creates the heavens and the earth, can allow these guys coming out sweet and clean, and he did. There's their preservation. Finally, there's their promotion. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. He asks in verse 15, what god is there who can save you from my hand? And having asked that question, he now proclaims the answer, therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speak anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. This guy is amazed. He's been brought down a few notches. However, he's not yet converted, but nonetheless... He recognizes that the one true God somehow is their God or he's different from all the other gods. He's still polytheistic. Then the king, verse 30, caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Now, we're not told specifically how he did this. Maybe he gave them an increase in salary. Maybe he gave them new living quarters. Maybe he increased their official responsibilities. They're already at the top. So why did they prosper? They prospered because God blessed them. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that there was no God like the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He recognized there's a supernatural dimension to their God. And on top of that, this is the kind of men you want working for you. People of character. People who will not rip off the king. People who will stand for what is right even when the king himself threatens you with his life. Now how are we going to apply this? I've already made a number of applications, but let me highlight three as we close. Number one, I believe God recorded this portion of Scripture to remind us that God is looking for a faithful minority who have the courage to do what is right. 
Here were three men who, who dared to stand up for their convictions. They wouldn't bow, they wouldn't bend, they wouldn't budge. They refused to worship the image. Major question, how do you develop that kind of courage? The Bible tells us in Chronicles, for the eyes of the Lord moves to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Please understand, there is no courage without conviction. And there is no conviction unless it comes from the Word of God. Parents, your kids cannot live off of your convictions. They need to have their own convictions. And that's why it is so important that you are putting them in the Word of God. First, you're putting yourself in the Word of God. These things must first be in your heart, Moses said. And then you'll be able to teach them to your kids in every facet of life. And then they will have convictions from the Word of God. Now remember, these young men, before they were brought to Babylon, sat under a young king named King uh, Josiah. And King Josiah restored the law because the law had been mocked and he, he shut out the idolatry. And he reinstated Passover. And we're told in 2 Kings 23, and before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him rise after him. These three men, along with Daniel, were under this king's revival, and it impacted their life. And so they can say, King, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. We, we got our minds made up. This is a no-brainer. They were not Daniel's yes-men. They had their own convictions. Secondly, I believe God gave us this passage to teach us that the pathway to usefulness is through trials. God has to bring us sometimes through the crucible of trials to make us more useful. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, He, Yahweh, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. God regulates the fire carefully. He brings the dross in our life to the surface. And what happens when these men are in the fire? The only thing that happens is what Nebuchadnezzar put on is now taken off. And many times God will bring you through a fiery trial to take off what the world has put on. Sometimes people will judge you. You're in the midst of a trial and they say, what are you, under God's discipline? These men were in the center of God's will when this happens. And understand too, discipline in the Bible has both a negative and positive connotation. Sometimes God takes us to the woodshed for sin. Sometimes you can be in the center of God's will and you're doing nothing wrong and He's just purifying you and using you in a more deeper, profound way. And he's building some positive qualities. And sometimes you're right in the center of God's will and you're right where he wants you to be. And he uses to a fiery trial to show you that your Christianity is not built on circumstance, but on the living God. I love that hymn. When through fiery trials, thy path pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Some of you are here this morning and you are in the midst of a fiery furnace. Simple math. How many went in to the furnace? How many showed up in the furnace? 
how many came out? I don't care what kind of a fiery furnace you are in. The Lord God is there with you. And He has His hand on the thermostat. He knows what He is about. Finally, I'm reminded from this passage that when God takes on a job, He does it first class. I mean, not even the smell of smoke was on them. When Jesus healed a deaf man, He didn't heal one ear and leave the other deaf. When He healed blind people and He healed seven in the New Testament, He didn't heal one eye and leave the other blind. When God does a miracle, He does it first class. And the greatest miracle God ever did was at Golgotha. God incarnated Himself in human flesh and bled on a cross. And when He saves you, He doesn't half save you. He doesn't half forgive you. He completely forgives you. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest sea. And He remembers it. He holds it no longer against you. Some of you are in a fiery furnace because God wants you to look up and come to Christ and salvation. Some of you are in a fiery furnace because He wants to purify you. Some of you are in a fiery furnace because He wants to get your life right. And some of you are in a fiery furnace just as a matter of testimony that forget this positive Joe Olstein nonsense. He's going to bring you through the fiery furnace to say that my God is still God no matter what the world says and no matter what the circumstances may be. Now, if you're here today, have you ever fallen on your face and say, God, I've sinned, and I'm worthy of your wrath, but I call upon the one who bore that wrath for me. If you haven't, why don't you do it right now? Now, our Father, we thank you today for your mercy and for your grace. We deserve nothing but wrath, but you've given us nothing but grace, and we bless you for that, for such kindness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who bore in His own body on the cross our sin. And when you raised Him from the dead, you made an announcement to all men everywhere that He was a sinless Son of God able to do that. Help someone today in simple childlike faith to call upon Him for whoever will call upon His name you said will be saved. Would you do that today? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. Remember, God cannot lie. The Bible says it's impossible for Him to lie. Moses said, God is not like a man that He would ever lie. God asks you to come in faith, to take Him at His word. And if you're unsure of your salvation, you've not come in faith. But I invite you today to take God at His word because He paid the debt in full. Ask Him, Lord Jesus, save me and change me. Now, Father, I know there are some here because they've told me their circumstances who are in a fiery furnace. Some in a fiery furnace of a health let down. And they need healing. And they're asking you to heal. And we're praying and asking you to do that. But may we like Job say, though you slay me, yet I will praise you. May we cleanse our mind of all the nonsense that is being taught in pulpits across America and recalibrate our minds according to your truth. 
And may you help us in the days that you told us that are in front of us. That will not get easier, but more difficult. Help us to stand, help us those whom we disciple, especially our children and grandchildren. To stand strong no matter what the world does. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.